Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Jeff Hudson. Um, Jeff Hudson is already down one beer and he's going to the second. That is how good uh, this brew we have. Oh, there you go. How good this current brew we have in front of us is. It's a great summer beer. Uh, I think it's local even. I've I've not drank this before. It's really good, Jeff. Tell us a little bit about it. It is from the Springhouse Brewing Company right here in Lancaster County. And this is their Pale Ale. There's Seven Gates Pale Ale, which has a national following. People like this beer all over the United States. It's easy to see why, isn't it? Oh, it's a good beer. It has full body, a lot of flavor to it, a little bit of a hop. Not a lot of hop. Not you, crazy hop. Right. Not, you know, not the nasty, bitter finish that you get sometimes from a full-bodied India Pale Ale. It's good beer. It is really good beer. Um, and... On our tavern tour, we were at Shanks Tavern last week. Um, by the way, next week we're going to bring you that interview uh, with Bob Shank, the owner of that tavern. He's been there since 1930, and the tavern's been operational since um, 1814. So we're going to bring you an interview with him and give you a little history about Shanks Tavern down in Marietta. So look for that next week. Um, also, we want to continue our tavern tour, right, Jeff? We would like to do some podcasts from taverns, uh, get to know some local tavern keepers and what they have to offer the community. So if you are a local tavern owner or you happen to know a local tavern owner, uh, please drop us a line, historypoliticsandbeer at gmail. Uh, hit us up on uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook. We would love to come in. Uh, we're really uh, low maintenance. We set up our microphones in a computer and talk about our pol- our uh, policy of the day or our topic of the day. And then we would like to spend a little bit of time with you discussing your product and what you have to offer. You bet. All right. So, uh, yes, last week, uh, or actually two weeks ago, I think I had a little rant um, when comparing politics and people to Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. And uh, Jeff and I were talking about one of his pet peeves. And I know, Jeff, that one of yours deals with tribalism and the idea of identity politics. So why don't you jump into that before we hit our main topic today, which is going to be the Iran deal and is what's happening with the United States pulling out that. But let's talk about uh, identity politics for a little bit. Okay, well, this is sort of an offshoot of identity politics. It's the idea of cultural appropriation, that cultures shouldn't come in and take somebody's ideas or uh, even uh, clothing styles, anything about a culture that somehow uh, a particular facet of a culture is only reserved to that culture. And of course, uh, this idea is nuts because (laughs) people have been traveling forever and whenever they're next to a group of people that has a better idea, a better way of doing things, hunting, fishing, growing uh, food, uh, a a style they like or cuisine that they think is tasty, guess what? They adopt adopt that. And uh, that's just human nature. Uh, It's it's impossible for me to think of, of one group watching another group back in 
in the dawn of prehistory and, and watching another group and they're maybe they're using something like a baited hook <laughs> and they're pulling fish out and they're going, Oh my God, look at this. It's a uh, well, we, we, you know, and the other tribe, no, no, you can't do this. You would be appropriating that. Uh, and, you know, you think back, you know, have you ever, anybody out there ever seen Roman numerals? Like, you know, sometimes, uh, People on quiz shows or something, they ask you to convert a number really quick to Roman numerals. And I one time knew them, but I can never convert those numbers fast enough. And I'm so glad that years ago, some mathematician somewhere said, you know, these Arabs, they got something going with these numbers. You know, they're, e- <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're easier to divide and multiply. There's no L's. <laughs> yeah, and you can. I like can, numbers with no L's. You can represent some big numbers in, in shorthand. And, uh, you know, and uh, we're and they said, we're going to go with the, the, you know, the Arabic numerals mm-hmm. rather than the Roman numerals. <laughs> and God bless them, you know. God bless for them for appropriating that. And I haven't heard. Any Arabs complain about that. Now, maybe there were complaints, but... Stop stealing our numbers. <laughs> Go back to your damn L's. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, and, and this came to mind uh, just recently. There was a young woman, I think her name was Kaziah Dom, and she wore a Chinese-style dress. I think it's pronounced Kui Pao. Yeah, this was all on social media. If yeah. you were on Facebook or something. Yeah, there was Your a, culture's not my culture's not your prom dress, oh, I think yeah, was the I cry, said, right? Uh, a young Chinese American man. My culture is not your goddamn prom dress. You know, he was all up in arms about this uh dress. And I was like, really? Well first of all I wonder you know, what are you doing? What is wrong with your life that you care what someone in another state is wearing as their prom, prom dress? I mean, right. There has to be, you know, you need to get a hobby if that's, <laughs> if that's what's uh, uh, bugging you. But this idea comes along. I saw something posted uh, not too long ago where there was a, a young black woman, and she was berating this a uh, white college student because uh, he had dreadlocks and she, she was yelling at him, that's cultural appropriation. And, you know, and, and again, I, 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 people can wear whatever hairstyles they want, I think. I mean, you know, one, one cultural icon that, uh, that we have now is Rihanna. I think she's had her hair blonde, blue, red, whatever. And pretty much Rihanna looks great in all of it. And, and, I don't think she thinks she's appropriating anything. She's just, you know, she's a fashionista. She's got a playful sense of style. Right. You see something, you take it, and you, you make it part of your own. You blend it in. Yeah. You know, we take food and do that all the time. You take aspects of Mexican or Italian food and you mix it into what you're already doing to enhance your life. You're, it's a compliment. We're not using it to dressing like a cartoon character. We're not talking about Speedy Gonzalez or something oh, like sure. Right. Sure. We're talking about taking something that you use and we're taking in our lives to make our lives better, to make our lives more full, to make our lives more colorful. That's a compliment. Yeah. And there's pictures of this young woman on the internet in her prom dress and she looks great. You know, I think people generally think people in China thought she looked great because we do live in a world culture now, which complicates this whole idea 
of uh, cultural appropriation. If you live in a world culture where everybody's borrowing everything, then, then you know, what is truly yours? I mean, you think about America. I, th- I think about Louis Armstrong. And, and you know, he, he was famous because he was a virtuoso at the trumpet. Well, the trumpet's not a traditional African instrument. You know, it was a, it was a band instrument, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, he learned how to play the trumpet. And he developed really the whole idea of the... Uh, uh, the modern, the extended solo, where you would have a virtuoso and the band would be playing behind you. And uh, uh, thank God Louis Armstrong got a hold of that trumpet, even though that might have been a European instrument, because he was able to express his genius through that. And black people got to enjoy it. White people got to, Americans got to enjoy it. People in Europe, I mean, you know, Louis Armstrong traveled to big crowds. Everybody got to enjoy it, and he got to express his genius, because through a cultural blending, as jazz was, as the whole music uh, was and, and, and is, uh, it's just the idea that you appropriate, you have something, and it's just yours, and nobody else can, can have it. Uh, just go, that's not how human beings have operated. Ever. Ever. So save your breath to oppose the crazy racism which does exist. Uh, don't waste any time on cultural appropriation because you know what? That's what culture is. We appropriate. All right. Thank, good job, Jeff. I agree with everything you said. I wish that there was an other side to that that I could argue a little bit, but obviously there isn't. So um, we're going to pause here for a second for, uh, I wish I could say station identification, but there's no station to identify. Just history, politics, and beer. We'll be right back. going to hit the main topic today. The main topic today is the Iran deal that, or Iran deal, that Trump just pulled us out of. Um, The deal was made, I believe, in 2015 under Barack Obama. It was years in the making. John Kerry, the Secretary of State, uh, was a six-nation deal. It was the five permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations, plus Germany. Uh, So that would be the United States, France, Great Britain, China, and Russia were all involved. And then Germany makes the six nation. And the goal of this deal when it was made was to prevent uh, Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, It was hailed by the Trump, not the Trump administration, by the Obama administration as being a landmark deal. Uh, This was going to block, I think, as Obama said, every avenue um, to Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, There were some people who were very much against it. Many conservatives were very much against it. Israel was very much against this deal. Um, So we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about what the deal was, um, how the deal was to actually achieve its goal why the pullout happened, what's the pros and cons of this. But we really have to go, like we always do here, jump in the way back machine and find out why are we even involved 
in the politics of Iran. And to do this, we have to go back to 1953. Um, and Jeff, I know you, you're going to take us here a little bit through time and try to streamline us to try to get this idea of the rocky relationship that the United States and Iran has had uh, for any, obviously even before 1953. We could even go back to World War One and talk about the partitioning up of the Middle East after World War One. But I think for our purposes today, the 1950s are probably be the best place to start. Right. Uh, the uh, Iranians after World War II, uh, you know, they they were allowed some measure of self-determination. They elected a leader, prime minister. Uh, his name was Mossadegh. And Mossadegh wanted to nationalize uh, the oil industry. And uh, nationalize basically meaning that the oil extracted from Iran would be uh, uh, eventually uh, owned by the Iranian nation, and Iran would come to own the the oil fields and all the you know the methods of transport and so on, and they would get more money from this. Um, and of course, the the British and American companies who were doing this didn't want that to happen. Uh, we'll important. come in and we'll come in and drill for you. Yeah, and uh, it was seen as uh, socialistic. Uh, the idea is is a little socialistic. We're going to have government-run industries, uh, and the CIA uh, and others instituted a coup against this guy. There were elements who didn't like. The elected leader, they didn't like the idea of Iranian democracy. And we ended up supporting uh, a monarch, the Shah, and uh, threw Mossadegh out of power, and the Shah got in. And the Shah was very repressive. He had a secret police called Savak, and they used to torture people. And, um, you know, he irritated also because he was some his secular and they uh, he pushed a more secular approach to government he irritated the religious conservatives and he opens the door to the west right he opens the door to westernization which we should say so there's some Iranians who definitely want to be more Western. That's right. not, but uh, they weren't, you, you can't force a country. He, he was dealing, uh, the Shah was dealing with a huge cultural backlash and eventually have the Iranian revolution in 78 and 79. Uh, he gets thrown out. The Ayatollah Khomeini becomes the leader of the revolution and sort of officially the head of government for a while. And you have hostages taken, Carter's attempt to rescue them, which ends in a disaster in the Iranian uh, desert. Finally, Reagan becomes president, and these 50 or 53 hostages right. are, are, are released. And it becomes a real, real uh, sticking point uh, between the Iranians and the Americans. Uh, the Iranians refer to us as the great Satan. They see us as a secular nation. Uh, whereas they're obviously officially a religious uh, uh, and I think nation. and I, Iran wanted after the Iranian revolution they wanted the shawl brought back to Iran to stand trial they did for some of <laughs> right. the crimes that they thought he had committed and the shawl had cancer right and the United States uh, Jimmy Carter let the shawl into the United States for cancer treatment and that's going to infuriate the Iranians um, now you have a coup sponsored by the United States Ameri the West comes in um, is profiting from oil uh, bringing Western culture in you there's a revolution 
and the United States then again doesn't bring the shawl back to you to hold for trial. As a matter of fact, they actually help the shawl get cancer treatment. So and, there's and, a lot of bad blood. And, there's a, and then it gets it gets might even get worse because you have a war between the Iranians and the Iraqis, uh, which is in part based on the two divisions of Islam, Shia and Sunni, which we'll get into. And this is from bit. most of the 80s. Yeah, and it's, it's a long, it's a, it, it might be the most pitched battles uh, that have taken place since World War II between Iran. They both had large armed forces. They both had oil money supporting these. And um, we supply, help to supply the building blocks of the poison gas program that, and uh, we know from satellite photos that Saddam Hussein uses those on Iranian troops. And, and so there's even more bad blood there. Uh, there's a famous picture, I think, in Time magazine of our Secretary of Defense, I think it's Donald Rumsfeld, yes. shaking mm-hmm. hands with Saddam Hussein. We were on uh, Iraq's side before, you know, we were with him before we were against, against him. him yeah. uh, you know, after he had uh, invaded Kuwait and uh, Saddam Hussein had, had done that and some other things, we turned against him as well. But this history goes back, uh, this bad blood between Iran and at least 70 years right. and if the you're, 1950s. And in all honesty, if you are Iran, you have a right not to trust the United States. Sure. We you, wouldn't like anybody who supported a coup in our country. I don't right. Know. And then, then supplied our enemy with weapons and then also weapons of mass destruction. Not that, not that we supplied them with weapons of mass destruction, but we provided them the— the money to be and able the to and the materials to be able to create these weapons of mass destruction and then let it take place right we didn't stop we didn't call no. this crimes against humanity um like we're doing in syria and trying to stop something like that this was okay because it was happening against the iranians right so there's there's a, like a lot of bad blood so and there's uh, it's also complicated by the question of is of, of israel here. right and, uh, you know, Israel is constantly and has been ever since its creation th- been threatened by its uh, Arab neighbors. Now, it's important to remember that Iran is not Arab. Uh, it is, uh, you know, they're Persian, basically. They don't speak a- Arabic in, in Iran. And most Arab Muslims are Sunni Muslims, and the Iranians are the largest country that is Shia Muslims. Uh, so, but... They, the Israelis feel threatened by Iran as well as they did Iraq. And uh, I remember before the Iraq war, Benjamin Netanyahu, before our uh, 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 war with Iraq, Benjamin uh, Netanyahu, who is currently the prime minister, said without doubt Saddam Hussein had nu- was developing nuclear weapons. Of course, he was wrong. We now know there were no weapons of mass destruction. There certainly wasn't any active nuclear program. It's been established beyond a shadow of doubt. So either Benjamin Netanyahu was lying, trying to get the United States to take care of this enemy of Israel, or he had bad, the Israelis are capable bad of intelligence. And it's interesting now that there is an Israeli component here because when Donald Trump just recently announced uh, that he was going to pull out of this peace deal that had been, well, this arms deal that had been negotiated with Iran, uh, that it was based on Israeli intelligence, which I would think because of our previous experience with Iraq would be very suspect. Well, yeah. And certainly 
Israel has a reason to fear Iran. I mean, uh, Iran has openly said that they want to wipe Israel off the map. I think they pushed them into the ocean. And so the idea that Iran would have nuclear weapons and could become a regional power, uh, military power against uh, uh, Israel, and Israel feels threatened, as they should feel threatened. I well, mean, and Iran has supported Hezbollah and some of these other uh, terrorist groups that have actively in, you know, in, invaded Israel and, and taken Israeli lives. So there is a reason for Israel to to be wary of Iran. But because of that reason, we have to be careful what Israel tells us. Yes, there's certainly a um, that they have a dog, a huge dog in this fight. Right. Uh, their their information may not be wholly objective. So the. The ultimate goal for the United States in foreign policy in the Middle East is to create regional stability. Um, you don't want to create a regional powers that one regional power would be able to dominate and push the other powers around. You want regional stability. And if you have regional stability, you will have peace. And the the bad player in the Middle East here for the United States is Iran. They're the wild card um, that if they get too powerful, they could threaten Israel. If they threaten Israel, there's going to be war. If nukes, if nukes are going to be used and Iran has them, even though Israel says will either confirm nor deny, we know they have them as well, um, there could be some sort of nuclear exchange and which would force them the United States' hand. So everything could blow up literally in, in the Middle East and the fuse could could be Iran. So there is a absolute desire to have Iran's nuclear program um, have some sort of controls on it, which brings us to 2015 and Obama's uh, nuclear deal with Iran. So let's explain that a little bit. All right. There's this before 2015. The basic policy against Iran was uh, uh, restrictions, economic restrictions, economic sanctions, and they were devastating on Iran. We were cutting Iran off. Uh, they were not getting trade. Uh, they were being economically strangled. And 77 million people in Iran were hurting because of this. Um, Did we freeze their monetary assets and banks? And absolutely. Okay. We, we froze their money, uh, which you're talking about hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars in the United States. And I think other countries were freezing their assets as well. It was decided that now obviously Iran wants this money back into their country, so a deal was struck. And the deal basically works like this. Iran, you have to do the following. You have to reduce your uranium supplies by 97%. You have to give up centrifuges, which can be used to enrich that uranium. I think you're giving up something like 75% of those. The enriched uranium that you have can only be enriched to levels of 3.67%, uh, which is rather low. To give you an idea, medical um, grade uranium is at 20%, uh, weapon grade uranium is at 90%. So this is relatively low grade uranium. And finally, you have to agree to inspections. If you agree to all of these things, what we're going to do for you, Iran, is we are going to lift these economic sanctions and, we are go and we're going to unfreeze the money in the accounts and we are going to bring you into the community of nations uh, and your country will benefit greatly from this. And as you agree to live by these rules, we will then continue to have sort of open relations with you. Um, 
the idea behind this, now let me also say this, is there's a sunset clause on all of this, that after 10 years, a lot of this stuff disappears. Now, the goal here is that if you bring Iran into everything, if you bring Iran economically into this community of nations, that the benefit will them will to be as such that they won't want to develop nuclear weapons. It will be in their benefit in 10 years to renegotiate or even give up their nuclear program because they are prospering. Um, even at the time, lots of conservatives were adamantly against this. Israel was adamantly against this. Um, and this was one of the things Donald Trump ran on, that this was the one of the worst deals ever struck. And as soon as he becomes president, he was going to pull us out of the, uh, the deal with Iran. Yeah, which, which he's done. But, you know, Donald Trump has said a lot of different things. And, and some of these things that he said seems to um, uh, have be conflicting. Now, he was in a debate in, I believe it was in Florida, and the topic of the war in uh, Iraq came up, uh, Bush's invasion of Iraq. And uh, Donald Trump, uh, during the campaign, said he was an early opponent of our incursion into Iraq. Now, like a lot of things, it seems like evidence for that is hard to find. But certainly in the debate, and I saw the, the, uh, this particular debate, he accused the Bush administration, and he said this very flatly, of lying about the weapons they ha uh, that Iraq had. And there was a sense uh, that Donald Trump represented something new in Republican politics that he was not going to be an internationalist. He was going to concentrate the energies and, and, and monies of the United States and building up the United States, not in these foreign wars. And certainly that is consistent with uh, Bannon and some of these other guys who were heavily influential in developing his, his platform. So, uh, He's adamantly against this the the Iraq war, uh, thinks the Bush administration has lied, but and he he doesn't seem to be on board with the Bush administration. They had advisors called what they call neoconservatives, who were for a very forceful ex expansion and use of American power, like yeah, Dick Cheney, like you know, let's let's go into Iraq, let's show them. What's up? Let's let's modernize and democratize this country, and we can do this. And Trump seemed to uh, realize that the majority of Americans don't want to do that. We're not into nation building, and yet here he is again. And he did mention Iran and this deal as being bad, but he has a. Uh, a secu national security advisor who is a neoconservative now, John Bolton. Yes. And he's known for his antipathy toward Iran. So is, in some ways, it looks like he's keeping the promise to tear up this. But if we get dragged into a war, it seems to be totally antithetical to the ideas that he was 
uh, proposing during the campaign. The yeah. idea that we're going to keep on, we're not going to spend money and American lives on these stupid wars. Right. So if you have John Bolton in there and you want to play devil's advocate, you're saying this is a stepping stone to a war with Iraq, um, that we're putting Iraq into a position where they're going to develop nuclear weapons, and that's going to give us the reason to go in, and we're going to be involved in another regional uh, war. Now, if we are looking at um, the just the disagreement uh, that the right has with this, they're, what they're going to say is that America is being played like a fool, uh, that Barack Obama is compared to Neville Chamberlain of 1938. This is the Munich Pact all over again. What you're doing is you're giving Iran all this money. Um, you're letting Which is their money. I don't think it's the idea that I think some people get confused about that, too. It's not like the United States has agreed to pay them foreign aid. No, but it is money they didn't have. Right. So they've agreed to unfreeze their assets. Right. So what you're going to do is for 10 years, you're going to let Iran have this money. You're going to let Iran build their economy. After 10 years, the sunset clauses come in and they're going to build nuclear weapons anyway. And now they're going to be better off than they were 10 years ago in their nuclear program. And what have you done? You've done nothing. You've actually made the whole damn thing worse. You know, what works, what other countries, what it seems to work is to put the boot on the neck. You put sanctions on them, you make it a hurt, and eventually it will crumble and they will be forced to give up their nuclear arsenal. This You have to use more of the stick than you do the carrot. And that, the, 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 that we're basically enabling uh, a catastrophe to happen. What do you think of that argument? Well, you know, I, I think there's another argument uh, to be made. And, and when you talk about countries that have enormous amount of resources, and Iran and Saudi Arabia, they have this huge amount of oil money. Can you stop them from getting a nuclear weapon? Now, a lot of people forget that there is already a radical fairly extreme Muslim government that has had nuclear weapons for many, many years now. And that's, of course, Pakistan. And Pakistan is not near as wealthy as Saudi Arabia or Iran. But somehow they were able, uh, through a combination of the scientists that, the, the, that were present, maybe a little help from North Korea, right. possibly, but to develop a nuclear weapon. And the reason they wanted one was they're next to the most popular, uh, populous democracy in the world, which is India. Who also has nuclear weapons. Well, in India, I think they got them, didn't they get them after Pakistan? Yeah. And they did, because Pakistan had them. So again, when you talk about a kind of, India is this enormous, you know, billion people, and they did uh, a very technologically advanced uh, country. I think they produce more computer engineers now than the United States. So... Uh, the question becomes, can you stop these countries? I, I think, first of all, when people think about Iran, they oh, Muslims, they're going to use them, they're extremists. Well, you know, Pakistan is where we found Osama bin Laden. The Pakistani government knew he was there. There's, there's no way he was there without the Pakistani government knowing it was there. He attacked us. He was supported. He's a Sunni Muslim. He was supported. Uh, he's a Saudi Arabian. 14 of the people on the, of the 18 that attacked us and hijacked were from Saudi Arabia. They were Sunni uh, Muslims. So if the question becomes, you know, we just can't let a Muslim, Muslim country already has this, and, and can you stop it? Here would be my, my argument about delaying 
the the acquisition of an Iranian nuclear weapon, which is probably what I think you can do. I don't think you can stop it. Is that they seem to now have a large group inside the country that is more and more interested in moderate government and a more westernized government. And I'd much rather have that Iranian government in what I you would think would happen in 10 or 15 years, have a nuclear weapon, than the present one, which is still totally dominated by the Ayatollahs. Right. And, it, and if we kind of walk that trail that you were just on, um, the United States is in a position where we're telling other nations not to have nukes and not to use them. We're the only nation on Earth ever to use nuclear weapons, twice, August 6th, August 9th of 1945. Um we tell other nations that you can't be trusted with them, though we produced over 70,000 of them during our time uh, during the Cold War, uh, when scientists were telling us that we probably only needed two to 400 really to be safe. Well, um, one of my favorite stats, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I used to teach it, I read it somewhere, was that during the height of the Cold War, we could destroy every man, woman, and child in the Soviet Union seven times over. And the Soviet Union could destroy every man, woman, and child in the United States, but only four times over. <laughs> so we, we would have won. It's a missile gap. <laughs> it's a missile. <laughs> but but yeah, it's like you're saying, we, we, we had overkill and they had overkill. Right. So this idea that we can dictate to other nations their own security based on our own security, it, it does ring hollow into a lot of places of the world. It rings of arrogance that the nation that has the most and the nation that's actually used them is now telling us whether to use them or not. I don't think we have another choice. Uh, we are in that, and non-proliferation has to be the policy. Um, because if everyone has them, it simply becomes more and more probable that they'll be used. Sooner or later, somebody or somewhere will use them. Right. So it does make sense to limit that proliferation. I. I Honestly, Jeff, I, I don't know where I stand on this. Uh, if just if I could go back in 2015, because I have opinions of about it right now about pulling out of it. But if you were to argue with me in 2015 that this is bad, that we're being Neville Chamberlain, and that this could all backfire on this is 10 years, and and you're hoping for a sea change in um, sentiment in Iran, you know, I, I don't I don't know if I I don't, I don't know if I'd be supporting. The Iran deal in 2015. Where where are you on that? If I could put you in the time machine back in 2015, and it's up to Jeff Hudson to sign off on this deal, yes or no, what are you doing? Well, yeah, that's an extremely tough question. And and again, I look back at history, and the greatest arms race that probably ever occurred was between uh, America and the Soviet Union uh, after World War II as far as the amount of money and the types of weapons and the delivery systems that were developed. And eventually, we were able to make a START treaty, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, where we reduced, both of us, the Soviet Union and the United States, reduced the number of nuclear warheads we had. And uh, supposedly, we don't have any missiles or anything aimed at each other anymore. And the majority of my life... Uh, mutually assured destruction could have happened within an hour. Right. The Soviet Union could have launched their missiles. We would have known it through satellites. 
uh, and launched ours, and that would have been it. We would have gotten seven times. <laughs> they would have gotten four times us. So th- that can, you know, you, you can uh, have these treaties to the, with these absolute dedicated enemies. Right. I mean, the Soviet Union supplied uh, the, the North Vietnam. The Soviet Union indirectly was responsible for way more deaths of Americans than Iran has been. Right. And yet we were able to sit down and talk to them and, and end that. So I don't see why we can't do it. I don't, I'm not uh, Islamophobic. I don't believe that they're not concerned with this, their, the survival of their civilization. Uh, so I do believe we can make a treaty. But, you know, Reagan said something that I think every American, trust but verify. He said that about the Soviet Union. He goes, somebody said, well, do you trust them to read this? He goes, yeah, I trust them, but you got to verify it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, just Reagan being a smart guy, uh, that you do have to verify these. And I don't know, do you know more about the inspection regime that's in place? Now, I've read something that we have uh, cameras on site for right. uh, that, that, that this inspection regime uh, with Iran is pretty tight. But I don't know if that's true. Could you describe that? Now, I, well, I, I have two sides to that. The first thing I read was one of the inspectors was quoted as saying that this is one of the toughest things he's ever seen, that there is no way the, inspe- the inspector was quoted as basically saying that there was no way that Iran would be able to do get nuclear weapons without them knowing about it. That's how tough these inspectors inspections were. But then you can read something else where Iran is able to delay inspections for up to 24 days uh, because you just can't go in and look around anything anywhere you want. So if you want to go someplace and, and Iran questions it, they have 20, you have 24 days before they can actually go in, which then the argument is you can basically get rid of any evidence in 24 days. So it really, this really... Go, looks to be, depending on what side of the fence you're on, is how you're going to look at these inspections, whether they're really working the way they should or they're or they're just simply kind of window dressing that it looks good, but you can do anything you want to really behind them. So I really don't know what the truth is there. Well, we didn't know the truth uh, before, supposedly before the war in Iraq. And Hans Blix, if you oh, yeah, Hans him, Blix, yeah. And the UN inspectors were allowed, a lot of people don't remember that, but they eventually were allowed as it became apparent. And this was, you know, to me, up, up until this point, the war in the. Uh, Bush's actions against Iraq appeared pretty smart to me. You know, you threaten them, you get, a, right. you, you know, you threaten the heck out of them. You, you you let them know we're coming, and then you get a really tight inspections regime. And Hans Blix and the UN inspectors weren't finding anything. And then you know the Bush administration said, "Yeah, that proves that they're there because you know they're they're really hiding them right. from the inspectors." Well, it turned out. The, the, the UN inspectors are right. Now, some people say, well, no, they move their weapons. I've even heard, the, the, but there was a, a group called the Iraq Survey Group, uh, and they, that was their um, mission in, in Iraq to determine if there were, um, you know, operations, current operations to develop weapons of mass destruction. And what they concluded is there, there were not. So the, the reason that we gave for that war was incorrect. Now, I've had people tell me, well, you know what? I think they moved some of that nerve gas and stuff to Syria. And now we get into this the Syrian connection. They would have never moved them to Syria. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni Muslim in a majority Shia country. 
Sunnis and Shias have a history over a thousand years of animosity. The last thing Saddam Hussein would have ever done is move any of his chemical weapons to a Shia government, which is what uh, um, Syria is. Right. And he would have never have done that. So they just didn't have these weapons. So that becomes a big problem. We even have Donald Trump himself saying the Bush administration lied. So what are we supposed to do if suddenly the Trump administration says, you know, I think we found some evidence that they are actually enriching uranium too much or whatever, and now we need to go in. And you have the experience of Iraq even, and even Trump's interpretation that it was a fib to get us in there. What do you do? What, what do the American people do? Who do they believe about this? Yeah. It, 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 it's a tough, tough question. I don't want to believe Iranians. I want a tough uh, inspection regime. But I'm, I'm certainly not going to believe the Israelis because they have their – because I don't like Israel, but they're – they have their own stake in this question, and they have Benjamin Netanyahu has lied about it before in Iraq. So I don't know. Who, it, it becomes a, it's a tough case. Who do you believe about this? I, and I don't know who to believe because I, be, I I think everyone has um, has their own motives not to tell the truth. I, I, in the end, though, I don't know what I would have done in 19, 2015, but I do know what I would have uh, done <laughs> now. I know. You have a habit of not answering my questions. You, <laughs> you, li- you like to ride the fence and then come out on someplace else. There's like a rabbit going down a hole, and all of a sudden you <laughs> pop up someplace else in the field. <laughs> anyway, so I um, today I, I am against this, and I'm against it. The pulling out or the the, the pulling out of the deal? Okay. Um, because I believe a deal's in place. You have China, Russia, uh, Great Britain, and France with you. You have Germany with you. Um, you made an, an agreement, an international agreement that was never approved by the Senate. You made an international agreement with allies. I believe you have an obligation, unless there's imminent danger, to work as a group. Either this deal dies as a, as a group decides, or this uh, it goes forward. And I think it hurts the credibility of the United States that a president can unilaterally decide, I'm going to undo what the previous president has done with relations with an agreement. I, I think that hurts Trump um, when he wants to have an agreement done with another nation. Um, what is the next president going to do? Certainly. Well, and, and now we're talking, you know, we're talking about Korea. Right. That's where this and, all brings us back to Korea. Yeah, and, and, you know, what is Korea thinking that the United States is just, uh, you know, they have this inspection regime and so forth they agreed to. Maybe you would agree with a similar framework uh, to ensure the denuclearization of North Korea. And would the next president suddenly pull out of the deal and say, eh, you know, well, that, that, that doesn't suit us right now or I didn't like the previous president. But there, there is this thing, and I think it's a really important that, that you just brought up, this idea of trying to have continuity and there used to be this thing where our disagreements between parties were supposed to end at sort of our uh the borders of our nation right 
that, that the foreign policy would be conducted in the best interests of the United States. It wouldn't be a partisan political issue. And, you know, the very best example of that is the Truman Doctrine and resisting the spread of communism, which every president from Truman through Reagan and through Bush did and eventually causes uh, worldwide communism to collapse. I mean, it's a successful policy. And I don't think any president, you know, I don't think Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, any of them seriously said, you know what? We're going to let it spread a little. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they didn't do that. Uh, and you do need some kind of consistency, and this hyperpartisanship makes it hard to have that kind of consistency. So when he goes into uh, let, let's play a little bit of um, uh, pretend here. If you are Donald Trump and this, you're coming into June 12th and uh, the, the summit's going to be held in Singapore, what do you want? I mean, you've already shown with Iran that you're w- really not willing to let another country have nuclear weapons. You want them denuclearized, and the carrot is not what you're going to use. You're going to use the stick. So what does Trump ask from North Korea? Well, I don't, I don't know. And, and, and you know, uh, uh, well, John, before you before you go, I'm going to say this. I'm not convinced this thing's going to happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm still I'm still leaning the idea that this this isn't going to happen. The whole thing is going to fall apart the last minute. I don't know where there's an agreement at. I know I kind of just completely interrupted you there. I'm going to answer my own question. That's OK. You know, um, you know, I, there's no agreement to be made. Because you've already established what your policy is going to be in Iran. Your policy is going to be we are not going to let you have nuclear weapons. We are not going to open up and allow the, the Western ec- ec- economy into your country because we're just going to help you develop nuclear weapons that you'll use later on. That's how bad this deal was. This deal was so bad that we have to pull out and not put sanctions on your country. That's what we're doing to North Korea right now. We have sanctions on North Korea right now, so I don't even know what the point of meeting is. Unless Kim Jong-un is willing to give up all his nukes, to me, that's the only thing Trump can accept. Anything less than that makes the Iran situation just look ridiculous because now you're holding North Korea to a different standard than you're holding Iran. And you have to make it— And and North Korea already has nuclear weapons. Right, and And North Korea— doesn't. And you have to—to American lives, North Korea is certainly more of a threat than Iran is. Right. There, there, there's no credible uh, delivery system that Iran has to the, to the right. United States. Uh, and actually, they're a threat to Israel. And, and, and that's, you know, I'm a big proponent of America. I think the, the, the number one recipient of foreign aid is, is Israel. Uh, the one thing I've always appreciated about Israel is the, the competency of their IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. I mean, they, they win wars against overwhelming odds. With, but using American weapons a lot of times. Right. But I don't want our country, our country, in fact, our country can't, our country can't be uh, someone who fights Israel's battle. It just can't be. And I, that is another complicating factor for me. This idea that Netanyahu has lied about weapons in Iraq and that now he's saying there's, these, you know, oh yeah, they have, and, and that Bush or that Trump has. Uh, uh, called Israeli intelligence credible on this. Oh, yeah, they want a nuclear right. weapon. And certainly Iran has wanted a nuclear weapon. And John Bolton's licking his chops sure. in and, the background with and, that. And, yeah. and, and, and I don't want, uh, you know, uh, another crazy Middle Eastern war where we spend $2 trillion and get, 
you know, uh, 4,000 young American lives stuffed out for no good reason. So, and again, it's very tough. And North Korea, as we've said, complicates the question because you want to be seen as a consistent good faith partner, uh, even though the people you're dealing with might not be consistent. They might, they might, or they might, but they might not have good faith. But you want to see that. You, you want to be a credible uh, I mean, party to, to these uh, uh, arms reduction treaty. And again, we didn't want the Soviet Union. I mean, we did it with you know, worldwide communists. When we look at the threat posed by Iran and North Korea, we have to keep this in perspective. <laughs> yes, we do. They're nothing. They're nothing compared to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had nuclear bombers that could reach us. They had nuclear missiles that could reach us. They had nuclear submarines, uh, you know, uh, just over 200 miles off our coast. And they could have destroyed, as we mentioned, every man, woman, and child in the United States. North Korea and Iran are, are nothing like that. So if we can make a, a deal with the Soviet Union, it seems to me like we can make a verifiable deal with these countries. Now, if Trump somehow threatens Iran, gets a little more... Uh, but you can't make a deal with North Korea because you didn't make a deal with Iran. Yeah, right. You didn't keep it. It's a tough deal. It's a it's a tough situation. I mean, and, and Iran, North Korea, nuclear weapons is just one part of this, right? I mean, they have they won the largest land armies in the world. Well, they have stockpiles of right. so, gas and everything else. Yeah, so. it, it, it just gets deeper. So what we're going to do here, um, we're, going to, we're going to bring this whole thing to a close because we could talk on and on until we actually got to June 12th. Um, here, I'm going to make a prediction, and I'm going to force you to make a prediction as well. Okay. And we can, then we can come back in June 12th afterwards in the middle of summer and see if we're actually accurate or not. Um, I think there is no meeting between them. I think the whole between thing who? Trump and Kim Jong un. Oh, really? I think the whole thing falls apart. And I think the whole thing falls apart because we are going to want them to give up nuclear weapons completely. They're not going to do it. In exchange, they are going to want American America military presence completely off the peninsula, which we cannot do. So I think the two bed, the two keystones holding this whole thing up are going to collapse before the whole thing even starts. That is my bold prediction. What is yours? Well, my prediction is that somehow we mitigate the damage we've done to the Iran deal. <laughs> I think Trump sometimes, I don't think he knows the ins and outs of of foreign policy. He doesn't. There's a bold statement. Yeah, I know. I think, it, <laughs> and I think that if I, I, I think he's led, a lot of people say he's led by the last guy in the room. The last guy in the room <laughs> might be John Bolton right, right. now. Uh, you got Madison there. The, the idea of having another war, especially with a Shia country, you know, Iraq is a dominant Shia country. What do you do with Iraq? I mean, Iran is, Iraq is certainly going to take Iran's side. You're running away from me, Jeff. What's your prediction? Oh, I'm sorry. The, my prediction is that somehow we mitigate the damage of the Iranian deal and it allows us to make a deal in Korea. So I'm disagreeing with you. All right. I think, uh, and I also think, uh, from our last discussion, you might remember, I think China and internal factors in North Korea are driving it more than what the Trump administration does. So there's a drive from those things to get a deal done. 
All right, then we're going to leave it at that. Hey, uh, like I said, next week, hopefully next Sunday, I think, we're going to be heading down to interview Bob Shank at Shank's Tavern. Uh, Really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, This summer, uh, Jeff and I are going to be traveling out and about. We might be heading down to uh, the battlefields of Antietam or the battlefields of Gettysburg and doing some podcasts uh, from some locations and talking about some historical events. So we're looking forward to visiting historical taverns. Visiting historical drinking beer along the way so um hey like i said drop us a line at history politics and beer at gmail hit us up on twitter hit us up on facebook uh until next time thanks for joining us thank you